I'm going to attempt to speak on a subject that uh, actually has the potential of offending some people. It's really no easy, uh, there's no way you can go about it that, that doesn't cause some people to be offended. Um, but I'm going to waddle, waddle around through it and uh, see what I get into. I was interested as I began searching this. I kind of had it in my head a couple of weeks ago. And as I was thinking about it, uh, I would uh, wonder what, where, I'm, where am I going to go for resources. And uh, I was curious to discover that uh, probably two or three of the commentators that I was reading would also mention, Stephen Cole is one that comes to my mind, a Dallas Theological Seminary grad, uh, who said, you know, he'd never, he'd never even preached on this topic before. Uh, and uh, obviously the issue is not on loving our enemies. That's what introduces the topic. And the topic is, are we to be pacifists or are we to defend ourselves? So that's what we're going to be looking at today, and hopefully, uh, uh, if you are a pacifist, I won't offend you. So it's a fairly straightforward message from the beginning. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 6, beginning at verse 27. We're probably going to make it as far as verse 36. I don't know, whatever, the, whatever uh, my uh, brain will allow us to cover in, in the 30, 35 minutes that we'll be together. This is the Lord talking, recorded by Luke, who got this from some people who were there. Luke was not present at the time. Matthew was. Matthew gives you a three-chapter account. Luke gives you a half of a one-chapter account, and that's probably the reason why. Interestingly enough, comparing them, you draw some little jewels of understanding that you don't get otherwise. So you're getting it from a different hearer's viewpoint, if you will, even though Luke wasn't the one that heard it. But I say unto you which hear, uh, love your enemies and do good to them which hate you. Bless them that curse you and pray for them that despite, despitefully use you. I've always had trouble with that passage. Uh, I have to tell you that word despitefully use me is one that I've struggled with. Pretty straightforward though. Uh, straight from Jesus himself, we're to show undeserved, unmerited love. We're to show the love that God showed us. To those who hate us, simple as that. We don't return their evil with more evil. We, uh, we do them good and not harm. We don't look for ways to harm the people who are angry with us or, or hate us or disrespect us or don't believe in our Jesus. If they curse us, we offer blessings in return. Just simple as that. Doesn't need a lot of explanation. As to the fact that they are despitefully using us, now then I start thinking in terms of Japanese prisoner of war camps and... Uh, and uh, being tortured and being locked away in the basement of the White House or wherever they've got the January 6th boys for a year and a half now and, and not being allowed your constitutional rights, being abused, despitefully use you. Now, the word doesn't really mean that, though, and that was helpful for to me, at least as I studied this. The word that's used, despitefully used, is defined as to threaten well, that to me is different than despitefully using me. To insult me, to slander me, or to falsely accuse me. That's different from physical abuse. That's different from being beaten up or being tortured. Now, Peter uses the same word. 
But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. And, you know, he goes on, he says, and always be ready to give an answer to someone who has a question for you. Having, verse 16, having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as evildoers, they may be ashamed that, and there's that word, falsely accuse you. That's the Greek word there. Your good conversation in Christ. For it is better if the will of God be so that you suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. And the next verse, I didn't put it on here so it was easier for them to read. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. So the context of this teaching from Jesus himself is one whose subject is verbal, personal attack by someone who despises you or for one reason or another hates you. Used despitefully then as one of the blessings that Jesus told us about. Being used despitefully is a blessing. Blessed are you when men shall hate you and when they shall separate you from their company and shall reproach you and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. So what we're talking about is criticism, complaints, sarcasm, people making fun of you, people who don't believe, saying false things about Christians. So the fact is, we must be willing to take verbal abuse. We must be willing to endure insults and threats and sometimes loss of jobs. If we stand up for what is true, especially in today's world, we'll lose our job. You know, We have to be willing to take that type of abuse and not offering anger or meanness in return, responding instead with love. Now, Jesus goes on, and he says this, which makes you think, well, this is getting a little physical. And unto him that smiteth thee on one cheek, offer also the other. And to him that taketh away thy cloak, forbid not to take thy thy coat also. Give to every man that asketh of thee, and of him that taketh away thy goods, ask them not again. Now, this is getting a little more physical, but you have to understand that in that culture, to slap someone is a great insult. So when you think in the terms of smiting thee on one cheek, it's not talking about making a fist and punching you in the mouth. It's talking about a grave insult. In some of those cultures in the Mideast, they'll take off their shoe and slap you in the face with their shoe. That's about as big an insult as they can do. And that's what we're talking about here. All right. So we have to be willing to suffer some physical abuse in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in whose shoes we are standing. We're standing in his place as we face this fallen world. We may have to endure some bullying for the cause of Christ, taking my coat, my overcoat, and my coat, responding instead with generosity and forgiveness. Now, there are a lot of people that take this message quite far. I remember Richard Wormbrandt saying we had a deal with the guards. They would beat us, and we would share the gospel with them. I don't know how well I'd do at that. They would break our bones and we would pray for them. I don't know. Pretty amazing. And as you would that men should do to you, do also to them likewise. I think that's a reasonable response. I suppose it's all easy enough to understand. Probably doesn't need a lot of explanation, does it? 
We are to stand out in the world as different, as a people filled with love and kindness. We should be different. When people talk to you, you should be different in your reactions and your responses to the world. And that's what Jesus is saying in these next verses, which I'm just going to read. For if you love them which love you, what thank of you? For sinners also love those that love him. Well, it isn't that the people you love won't thank you for loving them. It's just saying you can't expect a reward for doing what everyone else does. I mean, really, Christian, you've got to do something a little special. And if you do good to them, which do good to you, what thank of you for sinners also do the same? You're expected to stand out in the world as different. And if you lend to them whom you hope to receive, what thank of you? For sinners also lend to sinners to receive as much again. But love your enemies and do good and lend, hoping for nothing again. And your reward shall be great, and ye shall be the children of the highest, for he is kind unto the unthankful and to the evil. Now I love this next verse. Do you remember how uh, Matthew ended chapter 5? As Jesus was summing up the teaching of the law, I just, I, I, times like this, I want to be in Matthew and not in Luke. You know, Jesus goes through the whole teaching of the law, and he does the, the, he starts with the Beatitudes, and he goes through all the explanations of what the law teaches, and as he comes to the end of chapter 5, I may be in chapter 6, but I think it's the end of chapter 5, he says, be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. That's what the law requires. And the people said, oh, that's a good sermon. And they, you think they'd be wailing and crying that there's no way to get into heaven because we can't be perfect as God is perfect. Now this one ends with, Be ye therefore merciful, as your God and as your Father also is merciful. It's a little different take on the same message. We are expected to mimic God. We can't do it in the flesh. We can't do it on our own. Without Christ's blood in us and his salvation, we have no hope of fulfilling these things. But the fact is, that's the standard. The law has never changed. From the time it was given until now, the law has never changed. And this is what God holds us accountable to. Now, Paul adds to this when he, when he goes on. He says, I exhort you to the Thessalonians. First of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. You know, when you pray, you need to pray for all your leaders, for kings and for all that are in authority that we may live, live, I'm sorry, a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. You know, whether you've been called into the mission field or you've called, been called to preach, or, or God has led you to take a job up in Bristol teaching elementary school, this is the standard that he wants us to live like. He wants us to live quiet and peaceable lives in all godliness and honesty. That's the standard that's set for us. This all makes sense. We know this stuff. There's nothing new here, but sometimes we need a reminder. Paul goes on now to the Romans, recompense no man evil for evil. Same message. Providing things honest in the sight of all men. If it is possible, to the Romans, Paul said, as much as is in your ability, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. This is our goal. Honest, loving, caring, not rendering evil for evil, living in peace as much as we can, as much as lies in us. That's our goal. If you've been wrong, 
The Lord expects us to let him deal with the problem. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. You know, when you think about when your enemies wrong you or when uh, Pearl Harbor was attacked or 9-11 and the armies were sent out, it wasn't for vengeance. There's a difference between vengeance and justice. When we retaliate, we retaliate in order to bring justice, not vengeance. If somebody has wronged you, 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 you are perfectly within your rights to stand up for yourself. But you've overstepped your bounds if you seek to hurt them as they have hurt you. That's vengeance. But does this mean, and this is where I want to shift the question here, all this is true. I don't want to mitigate I don't want to minimize anything that's been said so far. It's all true. That's how God expects us to live. You know, um, that's the standard by which Christians should live. But does that mean we're supposed to simply lay down and let evil roll right over us to destroy our homes, our communities, and our nation? Now, you'll know from my tone already, I, I think the answer to that is no. Do we let a robber break in to our homes unopposed? I think the answer is no. Do we let our wives or our children be assaulted or abused and not resist? I think the answer is no. No, I think the answer, the short answer is I think we have an obligation to stand against evil wherever we face it. Are we to be pacifists? I think the answer is no. I had this guy once, Eugene Jenkins. It's... It was a sad little story because I was a seventh grader and never been in a fight in my life, and he was a scrapper. He was a bully. The whole time coming up through elementary school, he was a bully, beat up everybody, never got around to beating up me till we got to the seventh grade. And I didn't want to fight him. I've never been in a fight in my life, and I, I was not interested in getting a fight with Eugene Jenkins. Now, the funny thing about that is Eugene Jenkins hit his growth spurt in about third grade, and topped out in about the fifth grade. And we didn't, you know. I had a little guy, his name's Marshall. He runs a lock service around him, Marshall's Lock Service. Some of you probably know him. And I was uh, sitting in class one day, and, and the kids were picking on him. I was a teacher by then. And I said, leave him alone. He's like, he's short and weak. And he said, it's all right, Mr. Henley. They, they can pick on me. And I said, no, it's not all right for them to pick on you. He said, yeah, it's okay. He said, when we were in elementary school, I beat them all up. That's the way Gene Jenkins was. And he said, and then they kept growing, and I didn't. He said, I deserve it. So there Gene Jenkins and I. I'm in the seventh grade. I've got my English racer, brand-new bicycle, and I don't want to get in a fight with him. He's on the other side of me from the bike, and we're having this confrontation. No, I don't want to fight you. No, I'm not going to get in a fight. I don't know how to fight. I'm not interested in fighting. And I came up with all these crazy, whiny, seventh-grade things that I didn't want to fight this guy. And when I turned to go home, he goes, well, give me that bike. And I was holding on to the bike with two hands, and I said, no. And I pushed back at him. And, of course, he went backwards and realized I was probably three times as strong as he was. But I wasn't interested in fighting him. And then I rode off and always felt that was a great defeat. I don't feel that way anymore. I haven't seen Eugene Jenkins in probably 65 years. But I hope he's learned his lesson. 
Now, I've got five points I want to make about defending yourself and, more importantly, your family and, most importantly, your people, your nation. The first I want to make is from a conservative commentator. Some of you may know him, Lars Larson. Do we then turn the other cheek always? Is turning the other cheek talking about a lack of self-defense? It is true, he writes, that Jesus said to turn the other cheek in Matthew 5, 38 through 42. However, many scholars do not believe pacifism or non-resistance is the essential point of his teaching in this passage. These scholars do not believe that Jesus was teaching them to turn the other cheek in virtually all circumstances. That's the issue. Even Christ did not literally turn the other cheek when smitten by a member of the Sanhedrin. And I have it here for you. And when he had thus spoken, one of the officers which stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, Answerest thou the high priest so? And it says, Jesus turned the other cheek and here said, Smack me on the other one. No, he didn't say that. Jesus said unto him, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why are you smiting me? Why smitest thou me? Now, you could say he didn't defend himself. Well, he really couldn't because his hands were tied behind his back. But at the same time, he stood up for himself, didn't he? Why are you hitting me? If I've lied to you, show me the lie. It's interesting that even while these men abused and attacked our Lord Jesus Christ, he was still teaching them, isn't it? Here he presented a verbal defense. Now, the second thing I want to show you is kind of contrived, and this, I wouldn't even bring it up because it's a little, a little bit of a weak argument, but I think three of the four commentators I was reading all mentioned this incident. Now, uh, <clears throat> the subject is about the second coming. It's really not about defending your home, all right? But there's, there's a truth in there. There's a gem that speaks on the subject, and speaking of homeowners... And family heads, Jesus said, am I in verse 37? Yeah. Blessed are those servants whom the Lord, when he cometh, shall find watching. Verily I say unto you that he shall gird himself and make them to sit down to meet and will come forth and serve them. Now, this is, of course, telling the story of the, uh, the bridesmaids who weren't prepared. And he wants his servants to be waiting. He wants us to be waiting for him. He wants us to live in expectation of his return. I think, well, what has that got to do with self-defense? Everything, really. Every day of our lives, we should remember that Jesus is coming back. I'll show that to you. And this know, that if the goodman of the house had known what hour the thief would come. Wait a minute, now we're talking about thieves breaking into houses, aren't we? Isn't that interesting? Had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed, not suffered his house to be broken through. Be ye therefore also ready, or ready also. Luke does it backwards from these other guys. For the Son of Man cometh at an hour when you think not. Now clearly in this passage, Jesus is telling each of us we need to be ready for his return. But is he not also saying something about a responsible householder? Is he not telling us something about the culture in which we live. As a responsible parent, the good man of the house, the, the head of the house, I'm supposed to watch. And it's not talking about the football game. I'm supposed to pay attention. My number one priority is the salvation of my family, obviously. 
Is everyone in your house, is everyone in my house ready for the second coming of Christ? Because you know there's not going to be a second chance to get this thing right. If our families aren't saved, when Jesus appears in the sky and says, come up here, they're going to be left behind. And I don't think there's much hope for them. That's our responsibility. That's on our watch, as they say in the military. But there's also much evil out there, isn't there, that seeks to destroy my family other than the return of Jesus Christ when God comes to get his own. The context here is material goods in this passage, this parable, this story. I'm not sure it's any of the above. But our greatest treasure in our homes is our family, is it not? And no matter the danger, whether it's mortal danger from addictions or drugs or people that would hurt them, or demonic danger, spiritual danger that you you get associated with everywhere you go and in movies and music and TV, or eternal danger with them being unsaved and in, in the return of Jesus Christ catching them before they're born again, all of those dangers, is this not telling us to keep watch? Is it not placing a responsibility on the homeowner, the head of the house, the good man of the house, the head of the house? This is not placing a responsibility on there for the protection of the family? I think so. Third, notice when they came to arrest Jesus. I love this passage. I'm in John now. Judas then, having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, cometh thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. They're going to arrest Jesus. <laughs> Completely defenseless group of men sitting around a circle praying in a garden at night. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth, and you notice I highlighted that, and said unto them, Whom seek ye? They answered and said, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, now, you have to understand what happened here. The disciples are behind him. They came up to him, and he got in between them and the disciples. It would have been interesting, just for my own personal sake, to see what would have happened if they tried to get around him. But I think we know, don't we? Jesus said, Whom seek ye? And they answered, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Actually, he just said, I am. He is understood. Notice it's italicized. In that time, I didn't italicize it. Sometimes I italicize it. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with him. And as soon as he had said unto them, I am, they fell backwards and fell to the ground. Now, I, I don't think that happened by accident. I think Jesus is exercising a little divine prerogative there. Maybe I'm wrong. But I don't think so. But I think as they were trying to scamper around and get themselves up off the ground, they realized who was in charge tonight, and it wasn't them. Then Jesus asked them again, Whom seek ye? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said, I have told you that I am. If therefore ye seek me, let these go their way. Clearly, Jesus positioned himself in a position between the danger to his disciples and them in order to protect them. That's the good men of the house. That's what you do. You get in between danger and your family. doesn't matter whether that danger is drugs or evil or pornography 
whatever it is, you get in between the two and you defend your family. Someone breaking into your house, someone that would hurt your wife and your children. Evil seeks to destroy. The thief cometh not but to destroy and kill, Jesus said. Okay, example number four. Oh, I didn't do the last verse, sorry. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he, therefore seek me and let these go their way, that the saying might be fulfilled which he spoke. Of them which thou gavest me, I have lost none. That was his charge. Charge. God said, don't lose any of them. And Jesus said, I didn't lose one. Not one, except the one that you determined would be the son of perdition. Now later in Luke, as I was trying to go to earlier, Jesus will tell his disciples to buy a sword. Now, if, if you look up this verse on Scripture and you spend some time studying it, you'll find a huge debate about this. And there are those that don't agree with what I'm going to tell you. But clearly the Scripture says this. Then said he unto them, this is later in the book of Luke, Luke chapter 22, He that hath a purse, let him take it, and likewise his script, that's his money. And he that hath no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. Whoa. Really? Now, the sword here is not the kind of sword that the Romans carried. It's the kind of sword that a businessman sticks into his belt to defend himself against thieves and robbers and those that would do him harm. It's a defensive sword. It's a pocket pistol, if you will. All right. It's not an AK or an AR-15. It's to defend yourself. Now, you know, as I think about it, God is a warrior king. 273 times in the scriptures, he's called the Lord of hosts. Now, the hosts are the angelic warriors standing behind him, and he's the Lord. He's Jehovah, the Lord of hosts. He raised up warriors among the Israelites. The New Testament commends these warriors as heroes of the faith. So you can say, well, that's all Old Testament. Yeah, well, then... Why does Hebrews chapter 11 say that they're heroes of the faith? There are people that stood up for what is right. They're heroes of the faith. Significantly, no New Testament writer or even Jesus himself ever recommended a converted soldier quit his job. Now, John the Baptist had the opportunity when the the Roman soldiers repented. And they said, what should we do? And John the Baptist could have said, well, you need to resign your commission, which would have been a problem because I'm told that the shortest hitch you could get in the Roman legion was 20 years, a 20-year hitch. Couldn't resign your commission. John just told him, don't steal people and don't use violence to get your way and to, to, to forfeit money from people. Be honest in your dealings with people. He didn't tell them to stop being a soldier. Uh, the fifth point here. Uh, oh, sorry. I'm clicking over here. I'm supposed to be clicking over here. Uh, I've got mouse confusion here. The fifth point I want to make where Jesus said, This is my commandment that ye love one another as I have loved you. And then he says this Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Isn't that talking about defense? Isn't that talking about getting in between the danger and your friends? I, I think it is. Now, God ordained human government. 
We have to agree with that. He clearly said that. He did that to provide law and order within the boundaries of the nation. That's the responsibility of human government. He who sheds man's blood shall by man, man have his blood shed. It's the ordination of human government. That's what God said. It is the responsibility of our government to protect us from evil within our boundaries. It's also within our boundaries. I didn't enunciate that. I'm sorry. But it's also the responsibility of the government to provide a national defense for enemies on the outside that would seek to destroy our country. God set that up. And every New Testament writer affirms that. To do this, these to do this, in order to do that, these governments are told that they must bear the sword. That's talking about physical defense, allowing for the use of force against evil. So I agree with a theologian I was reading, and his name is J.P. Moreland, and I'd never read him before. But as long as I see that they're a graduate of a solid seminary, I'll go ahead and read him. And he's Dallas Theological Seminary, and I think, well, that can't go too far wrong from that. J.P. Moreland said, and I quote, to permit murder when one could have prevented it is morally wrong. To allow rape when one could have hindered it is evil. To watch an act of cruelty to children without trying to intervene is morally inexcusable. In brief, not resisting evil is an evil of omission. An evil of an omission can be just as evil as an evil of commission. If you turn your back and walk away, you are guilty of the crime. Any man who refuses to protect his wife and children against a violent intruder fails them morally. I'm going to end with this. Now, in this passage, the context, I think, is food and clothing. (laughs) But if any may provide not for his own, and specifically for those of his own house, Interesting division there. Hath denied the faith and worse than an infidel. But there are things we need to provide as household heads, men and women, that go beyond food and clothing. And we can't leave it up to the schools or the churches or the community to do the things that we are responsible to do. I'll never forget. I went fishing one time with Keith Williams a very long time ago. I mean... 40 years ago, and we all had little kids, and the the women were arguing about homeschooling, and the men didn't want to homeschool. They thought it was too much work. That day is he and I. (laughs) Oh, I don't know, Linda. That sounds like a lot of work. You know, the ladies were gung-ho. We were out there fishing one day. He said, you know what? I was reading the Old Testament. Uh, Okay. He said, it's not our wives' responsibility to educate our children. It's ours. I said, yeah, I guess you're right. When you read the Old Testament, it does talk about the fathers training the children. He said, doesn't that frighten you? I said, it didn't before today, but now you're starting to worry me. It's a big responsibility. We can't say, well, the schools are are bad. Well, the government is corrupt. We can't say that. It's our responsibility to teach them. I'm going to tell you about one more fight. I was 14 years old, I think. I think 15, 15 you go to high school. I might have been 15 at the time. I might have been a brand-new ninth grader. And the kids in our neighborhood, uh, 
we're all buzzing around about a fight after school. Going to be a fight after school. Be, oh, let's go watch the fight after school. You know how kids are, you know. I, I don't know if I'd ever even seen a fight up until then. I, I had a, a football player that beat me up regularly, but I never tried to fight him. Uh, he just enjoyed knocking me down and beating me up and picking on me. He later became a pro football player, so I didn't feel too bad about it. Uh, but uh, I remember one time I was running from him as fast as I could run, and I, I, my toe picked up a stick. And have you ever seen a cartoon where you get the stick cut between your legs and then down on the grass, and he just stood there laughing at me? Well, that's another story. Anyway, my friend Mike Murphy, he was... Uh, he was the Catholic family that moved in across the street. They talked like that back in the 50s. They're Catholics. You know, like you can't say it out loud or something will happen to your community. I don't know. So what's the big deal, Mom? So what? They're Catholic. I don't care. Well, they got nine kids. Well, so what? That's a lot of kids to play with. Oh, I don't want you to play with them. Well, anyway, of course, he became my best friend. You know, don't play with that Catholic boy. You know, he became my best friend. Now, my mother's not saved, doesn't believe anything, except I shouldn't play with a Catholic boy. Well, Mike, of course, and I became good friends. And he got tangled up with some older, meaner kid while we were growing up, and they decided they were going to have a fight. So we all ran down to a little vacant lot, which is about, I, I don't know if I, I would say down the end of the block, but that doesn't mean anything to you. Probably, I, I doubt if it was 150 yards away from my house. Um, of course, idiots that we were, we all went to watch. And I don't remember how many people were there, but there were a bunch of us. I mean, I mean there might have been six of us or eight kids, all, all kids, stupid, stupid kids standing around. Usual bad-mouthing and threats. No one was throwing a punch, and everybody was going, hit him, hit him, and, you know, all this. Nothing would happen. And the mean guy was trying to get Mike to hit him first, so he had an excuse to do what he had planned to do all along, which we didn't know, but at the very last moment, he pulls out what we called a banana knife and stabbed Mike right in the gut. And uh, we were horrified. We, we didn't know what we should do. Now, Mike survived that, but he came very close to dying. It was in the emergency room that he almost died. And I often wonder, as I look back on my childhood, if there's anything I could have done. We were all afraid of the big kids, see? But there were like five or six or seven of us. Could we not have at least said, put the knife away, you big chicken, you know? Or couldn't we not have hollered at him or done something? We all just stood there with our mouths hanging open, gaping, not knowing what to do. And I often wondered, do I bear responsibility in that? I mean, I could have at least screamed something horrible to him and ran. I was good at that. I was good at running in those days, you know. And uh, So I, I don't know. But I think there's an element to which, of course, I wasn't the good man of that house, but I was there when a guy was being assaulted with a knife, and we said nothing that I can remember, not one word. And I wonder, have I let Mike Murphy down? And I actually think I did. Let's pray. Father, it's our hope. It's our prayer, Father that we're not letting our community down, that we're not letting our nation down or our family down. I pray, Father, that you'll give us the words, the means, and the courage to stand for what's right in a culture that's determined to destroy itself through sin. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.